This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today I want to talk about St. Joseph and especially two markers of his identity that the church identifies as what made him great. And those two are designated by feast days. We celebrate Joseph the worker and we celebrate Joseph the husband of Mary. We'll see how these two markers of his identity worker and husband, end up opening vast vistas in his personality, how they're interwoven throughout his life. Well, what did he work at? He was an artisan. The word is often translated carpenter, which is a fine word to translate it as, but you could also use contractor to kind of uh, hint at larger scale projects that somebody in this line of work may have done. Or you might say craftsman, on the other hand, to talk about the intricate and sort of detailed work that somebody in this position would have done in the ancient world. Well, he was also husband of Mary. In the Clothed with the Sun episode, we saw how the fallen angels, the demons, made war on the woman and her offspring, and the archangel Michael had to raise an army to fight this battle in heaven all over Mary. Now think of Joseph, the builder from Nazareth. This woman was presented to him to be his wife. He was going to protect her and provide for her. They were going to be subject to one another, using Paul's words. In the Jewish world, he was going to be head of the household. So this tells us something very important. Our Lady, who's so great and glorious that angels leave heaven rather than be subject to her, was herself subject to Joseph and him to her. So the Gospel of John has that beautiful phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, the Greek there actually says, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's a reference to dwelling among us in a house, in a tent. Well, we can say the word became flesh and lived in a tabernacle provided by Joseph with us. We could say the word entered Joseph's family, lived in Joseph's house, and entrusted himself to Joseph's care. That's huge. Joseph built the first tabernacle, the new holy of holies that housed God himself. And the reason that the church talks about the glories of St. Joseph, and we have made him the um, patron of the church, and so many people praise Joseph and are following Joseph and name churches after Joseph and institutions after Joseph is, yeah, because of those roles, but also because he was a just man, a righteous man. That's how he's summed up in the Gospel of Matthew. And Pope Benedict, in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, The Infancy Narratives, makes a big deal out of what that phrase meant in the Jewish world. It's kind of summed up in Psalm 1. It says, Blessed is the man who follows not the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the path with sinners, but whose delight is the law of the Lord, and who ponders his law day and night. He is like a tree that is planted beside the flowing waters that yields its fruit in due season, and whose leaves shall never fade. Well, think of that as a description of Joseph. 
There are no recorded words of St. Joseph in the Gospels, only deeds. We're presented with a man who's strong and silent and just goes about providing what's expected of him, like a tree planted by streams of water, if you will. But I also think that in addition to putting Joseph as the subject of Psalm 1, we can also think of him as the subject of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? John Paul II referred to Psalm 8 this way. He said, Compared to the immensity of the universe, man is very small, and yet this very contrast reveals his greatness. You have made him little less than a god and crowned him with glory and honor. So this is significant, actually, and it's something we often forget. We're made in the image and likeness of God, which is infinite, unfathomable dignity and worth. So gazing into your soul is like gazing onto a mountain vista. You're looking at huge depths. The Second Vatican Council put it this way. It said, man plunges into the depths of reality whenever he enters his own heart. Or Gerard Manley Hopkins, the poet, put it this way. Oh, the mind, mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightful, sheer, no man fathomed. Hold them cheap, may who ne'er hung there. But when Joseph was presented with Mary, he was presented with the Ark of the Covenant, the woman clothed with the son, the mother of God to be his wife. But she was presented with a man who was worthy to take charge of her whole life because he was like you and me, a small town guy with no great position, but who had the ability to cooperate with God himself. Now, it's important to note right from the start that Mary's role in salvation history was utterly unique and far, far greater than Joseph's. We know Mary's role by heart because we explain it every Sunday in the Creed. We say Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. That's huge. Mary nurtured the very Lord of Lords in her womb. She was predestined from eternity for her role, says the Second Vatican Council, and the maternity of Mary in the order of grace began with the consent which she gave in faith at the Annunciation, continued to the cross, and now makes her the mediatrix in heaven. So Mary is a huge deal. The whole history of Mary has caused the Church to say she was immaculately conceived. She's the sinless Virgin Mother of God. She had to be the proper vessel for the Son to enter mankind, so she had to be without original sin, the propensity to pride, lust, and greed that was passed to all the descendants of Adam, but not to Jesus. You need whole books of theology to explain everything that means, and the consequences of it are enormous. Then you need whole theological libraries to understand who Jesus Christ is, both God and man, without confusion, without division, only one person with two natures, absolutely God, absolutely man. We'll talk more about that in the future. But you don't need any special theology to understand Joseph. Joseph is just a guy. A guy who was the first to experience what all Christians experience now. He was going about his daily life, doing his best, when the unseen Jesus Christ burst into his life, took center place, and changed nothing at all about who he was, and yet changed absolutely everything about who he was. 
Before Jesus came along, he was Joseph the Builder, Joseph, one of the chosen people of God, Joseph, the son of his dad, Jacob. Then suddenly, he was Joseph, the builder of a home for God, Joseph, chosen to raise God's son as his own, Joseph, who was adopted by God himself. And we see in Joseph just how important it is to be, like you and me, a regular guy or a regular woman. We don't often notice it. But when the gospel tells the story of the Annunciation, the visit the angel Gabriel makes to Mary to announce the Incarnation, the gospel focuses not on Mary first, but on Joseph. In fact, Joseph's fatherhood fulfills God's promises in a way that Mary's motherhood does not. Quotes, The angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town called Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary writes St. Luke in his gospel. And coming to her, he said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Notice, the angel of Gabriel gives two reasons Mary had to be the one to receive the Christ child. We know one reason, because Mary is full of grace, sinless from her immaculate conception in her mother's womb to today. But there is a prior reason given in the gospel. It is because she was betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Joseph is key because even before the Messiah was prophesied to be born of a virgin, it was made clear that he had to be an heir of David. That means one of the fundamentally important things about Mary is that she's married to Joseph. As Psalm 89 puts it, I have sworn to David my servant, I will make your dynasty stand forever and establish your throne through all ages. If Joseph had adopted Jesus, then Jesus would be every bit as much Joseph's son as Augustus Caesar, the emperor at the time, was the true son and heir of Julius Caesar, his father by adoption only. But theologians point out that Joseph did not have to adopt Jesus because Jesus was the child of Joseph's marital union, not fathered by Joseph, but not fathered by anybody outside the union either. That makes Joseph's ancestors Jesus' ancestors. So the Gospel of Matthew and Luke both include a genealogy, and both identify it as a genealogy of Joseph. The Gospel of Matthew gives Joseph's genealogy and begins, quotes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, end quote. Abraham is important because he emerged out of nowhere from the idol worship of prehistory and with great faith threw himself into the hands of the one almighty God who promised him that his descendants would number as the stars and as he assured us in Psalm 105, the Lord remembers his covenant forever. Joseph, like Abraham, emerged out of nowhere, but the nowhere that Joseph emerged out of is Nazareth a place which is not really mentioned much in history or in the Bible, a place where archaeologists have actually found ancient sacrifices took place long before the time of Joseph. Nazareth was a backwater valley in Galilee when Joseph was growing up there, far from Jerusalem, and it, but at one point it had been nicknamed the Watchtower because you could climb a hill at Nazareth and see 30 miles in three directions. You could see the important mercantile roads, including the main road from Ptolemais to Decapolis, 
Thus, Joseph, like Abraham, emerged from an ancient place at the crossroads of cultures, an ancient place of sacrifice. I think it's significant that Abraham has promised to be the father of many nations in a solemn covenant. If you remember this story, God tells him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land that you possess. And Abram said, how will I know that I shall possess it? And God said, bring me a heifer, three years old, and a female goat, and a ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon, and divide them in half. And then, like a flaming urn, God passes in between the two halves of the covenant, which is an ancient form of saying, if I do not keep my promise, let me be like these animals. And the very next thing, so that's at the end of chapter 15 in Genesis. The very beginning of chapter 16, we see, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. So Abram actually fathers children with this servant, Hagar, which later infuriates Sarai and actually infuriates God because what God wanted him to do was trust that God would get his promise accomplished. Even after God made this solemn promise, Abraham didn't trust him. And that is a reason that we have circumcision as a covenant because it's a sign that Abram has misused his sexuality. Just as Joseph was greater than Abraham in his trust of God, Joseph was greater than David also. Remember David famously fathered a child with a woman who was not his wife. Well, Joseph famously was father to a child that he did not father biologically and took care of that child his whole life. As we heard last time, when the angel promised Mary a son, she said, how could this be since I have no husband? Well, she did have a husband, Joseph. So what she must have meant is how could this be since my husband and I do not intend to consummate our marriage, right? To this day, there are these kinds of marriages that aren't physically consummated that are called Josephite marriages, very rare, discouraged by the church. So it seems that Joseph had the opposite of Abram's faith. He had such a great faith that he became the father of nations even without physically consummating his marriage with his own wife, let alone with a concubine. In fact, he perfectly fulfilled what St. Paul later said about marriage, saying, from now on, let those having wives act as not having them. Those weeping is not weeping. Those rejoicing is not rejoicing. Those buying is not owning. And those using the world is not using it fully, for the world in its present form is passing away. So that's Matthew's genealogy. Luke's genealogy comes later in Luke's Gospel, as I think is in chapter 3. But it includes both Abraham and David, but goes all the way back to the beginning, identifying the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God, as Jesus' ultimate origin. So read the story of Genesis from Adam on, and you'll meet Jesus' family. The somebodies and the nobodies, the villains, tricksters, traitors, and heroes, whose families are a profile in the messiness of humanity. So Luke's genealogy starts by naming a different father to Joseph than Matthew's does. And that has led to years and years of curiosity, confusion, and scholarship. <laughs> 
it could be that one is his biological lineage and the other is his legal lineage. Legally, when a father in Israel died, his brother took his place as head of the household, which made for multiple family trees in many families. It has also beautifully been suggested by some scholars that in Luke we see the genealogy of Mary instead of Joseph. Mary was the only child of her parents, Saints Joachim and Anna. And as John Bergsma says, that if Joseph's father had died when he was young, and if Joachim had only a daughter as an heir, he could have made Joseph his son. His son-in-law could become his son. And uh, Bergsma points out that the name Joachim is related to Eliakim and could be shortened to Heli, which is what's used in the gospel. That would make Jesus the son of David on both his mom's side and his dad's side. In either case, Luke's emphasis on David is important because of what happened when David told the prophet Nathan of his plans to build a house for God, a place to house the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the tablets of the law. The prophet answered that no, God will build a house for David, not the other way around. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. End quote from 2 Samuel. I love that this prophecy looks for someone who can build a house, and Joseph was a carpenter, a builder, and Jesus himself was called a carpenter, a builder. How would David's descendant be a king forever, though? The question is only answered when Jesus appears on the scene and announces, this is the time of fulfillment, the kingdom of God is at hand. He means the time of fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham and of the kingdom promised to David. But without Joseph agreeing to take Mary as his wife, without a son of David as his father on earth, and God as his father in heaven, the prophecies would not be fulfilled. So it's vital before anything else happens that Joseph agrees to be Mary's husband. But the first thing we hear about Joseph and Mary after Mary's Annunciation sounds awkward and difficult for us because we don't understand it. It's really not awkward at all. It is Joseph's crowning glory. And it goes like this. It's from the Gospel of Matthew. And you hear it often right before Christmas and you kind of have to explain it to your kids in the car. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to send her quietly away. First of all, when we hear it in Mass, we often hear the word divorce used. Joseph decided to divorce his wife. Well, they're using the word divorce because Mary and Joseph are already married at this point, right? So there's no question of Mary being a single mother. On the other hand, if Joseph was unwilling to put her to shame, in ancient Judah, he certainly wouldn't divorce her, which would involve a formal repudiation of her. It would put her to shame. To say he dismissed her or put her away quietly is better translation at getting what he wanted to do. He planned to slip quietly away from the marriage. I love what Mother Teresa wrote about this. St. Joseph is the most wonderful example, she said. When he realized that Mary was with child, he only had to do one thing, to go to the head, to the priest, and say, my wife has a child, not mine. They would have stoned her to death. That was the rule. 
Instead, he decided, I'll run away. And the rule was that if he had run away from his wife and left her pregnant, they would stone him, end quote. Mother Teresa is no theologian, and the theologians interpret Joseph's decision in various ways, but Mother Teresa's explanation makes undeniable sense, and it is powerful. Now, some say stoning was no longer practiced in Joseph and Mary's time. Other people say it was. At any rate, you could substitute the word shaming for stoning, and you get the same point. The real point was that Joseph was making himself look guilty and his wife look innocent. Think of it. Joseph would slip quietly away before Mary was known to be pregnant, but Mary's pregnancy would soon become obvious to all. Joseph would be approached about it, no doubt. If Joseph truly refused to expose her to shame and decided to do so quietly, saying nothing in true Joseph fashion, the conclusion people would make is obvious. Joseph must have impregnated Mary and then abandoned her. Fathers of the church suggest that Joseph knew Mary wasn't guilty of anything. St. Joseph said, quote, Joseph, confident in her purity and wondering at what had happened, covered in silence that mystery which he could not explain, end quote. But Joseph knew what the Mosaic law said. Mary had either done wrong or she had been wronged. Either she needed to be stoned or would wind up being ostracized or someone else did. Joseph chose someone else, himself. So, Jesus' foster father decided to silently make himself guilty of another person's sin and suffer in her place. So, if Mother Teresa's take is right, Joseph didn't just decide to suffer for Mary, but for Mary and her unborn child. He offered himself for Jesus, too. I like to think that Jesus remembered his dad Joseph's deed when he stood before Pilate and the Sanhedrin and King Herod. In his case, Jesus knew you and I were guilty and that our sins had to be punished. But rather than see us suffer, he made himself guilty of our sins. He did it the same way Joseph did, too. When he was asked to defend himself, he said nothing. He couldn't admit guilt because he wasn't guilty. He couldn't profess his innocent because he wasn't innocent. He had taken our sins on himself. Instead, he said nothing about his innocence before Caiaphas, before Pilate, before Herod, sealing his doom and winning our freedom. There's another lesson in this self-sacrifice of Joseph also. In St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we are given the ultimate description of how a husband should act. Quotes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a great mystery, and I mean in reference to Christ and the church, end quotes. If Mother Teresa is right, and I certainly think she is, then Jesus is not just the greatest example of this. He was the original example, the one Christ himself would follow. Joseph's marriage was the model that Christ followed in his marriage to the bride, the church. Quotes, see the tender love of St. Joseph for Mary, Mother Teresa told married couples. He loved her so much that he would rather the people would stone him than her. This is the love that I pray for you, end quotes. But of course, Joseph did not die for Mary. He wasn't stoned for her sins. In fact, another annunciation followed Mary's. Gabriel appeared in a dream to Joseph and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for... That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mary's reply is famous as a formula for accepting God's will, her fiat, be it done unto me according to your word. Joseph didn't speak an answer to the angel that we know of. Instead, we learn, quotes, When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So Joseph's fiat is more like the fiat that you and I have to give in our lives. Not an eloquent yes, but an undramatic yes of getting out of bed and simply doing what you're supposed to do. The gospel even repeats it twice. It says, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, into your home. And then later, it says, Joseph took his wife into his home. That's such a significant phrase. From the cross, when Jesus gives the disciple John to Mary and vice versa, we are told, from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. The same language. So to take Mary into his home meant for Joseph to change his life. Wives do that to men in any circumstances. Men are hardwired to want to please their wives. Ordinary marriages civilize men, make them work harder and improve their behavior to meet the expectations of women. Imagine how being married to Mary would change someone. In fact, this kind of makes St. Joseph the example par excellence of Marian consecration. There's been a worldwide renewal in Marian consecration sparked by Father Michael Gately's book, 33 Days to Morning Glory. In it, he gives examples of four saints who explained Marian consecration. Joseph fulfilled each vision of Marian consecration to the full. St. Louis-Marie de Montfort is the first example of Marian consecration Father Gately gives. This devotion consists, says St. Louis, in giving ourselves entirely to Our Lady in order to belong entirely to Jesus through her. End quote. Well, who is the ultimate model of giving yourself to Mary? Joseph, the husband of Mary, because marriage is a self-gift of one person to the other. You give yourself to your spouse entirely, and your spouse returns the gift entirely. St. Maximilian Kolbe is Gately's next example, and he focuses on Mary as spouse of the Holy Spirit. The creature most completely filled with love, filled with God himself, was the Immaculata, wrote St. Maximilian. United to the Holy Spirit as his spouse, she is one with God in an incomparably more perfect way than can be predicated of any other creature. That's what St. Maximilian Kolbe says is consecration. Who is the first to know Mary as spouse of the Holy Spirit? Joseph, who, told the, who was told by the angel, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Mother Teresa, St. Teresa of Calcutta, is Gately's next example. For her, marrying consecration means making a covenant with Mary. Mother Teresa compares it to a bessa, the solemn promise in Albanian culture that is so important that even the dead come back to keep them in some stories. Gately points out that covenants are an exchange of persons, not just vows. Mother Teresa says, we exchange hearts with Mary. Lend me your heart, Mother Teresa prays, and keep me in your most pure heart. Who exchanged hearts with Mary first? Her husband, Joseph. As Jesus himself says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. We are used to seeing this as a physical image of what happens between a man and a wife, but 
St. Paul sees it as a spiritual reality. He says, this is a great mystery. I mean in reference to Christ and the church. So let each of you love his wife as himself. Joseph did exactly that in Mary's case. If we exchange hearts with her, we do so in only a pale imitation of what Joseph did. The last example of Mary in consecration that Gately gives is St. John Paul II. And St. John Paul II calls consecration entrustment. And he took as his motto, totus tuus, which is a shortened version of totus tuus ego sum, which means I belong entirely to you, thus devoting his whole life as Pope to Mary. What did John Paul II get in return? When an assassin tried to kill him in St. Peter's Square on the anniversary of the appearance of Our Lady of Fatima, John Paul was saved in what he considered to be a miracle. He said one hand fired the shot, another hand guided the bullet. He considered this a fulfillment of a vision given at Fatima of the Pope being saved from violence by Our Lady. Well, who does that remind you of? Joseph was the first to entrust himself to Mary, to devote his whole life's work to her. He was the first to walk through violence unscathed with her at his side. Joseph was the first to say totus tuus to Mary. Think about how Joseph's story is so much more like yours and mine than Mary's is. Imagine being St. Joseph, a small town carpenter who reads his Psalms and knows his religion, but to whom we can imagine nothing much out of the ordinary has ever occurred. His life has challenges. His family story has twists and turns. He has moments of great happiness, moments of profound sorrow, but they all add up to kind of a small town story of an unknown man who's destined to go through history unseen. Then suddenly he finds himself caught up in something far, far greater than he could ever have imagined. In his new story, angels are telling him that his wife is the mother of a child begotten by God. His wife is to have a baby on the road. Shepherds will come, telling him that the angels have spoken to them about the child. In his story, he's suddenly going to be host to strange men from the east, unlike anyone he's ever seen, men who prostrate themselves before his child with elaborate gifts. An evil king is going to try to destroy his child, and he's personally responsible for saving the future of the world from the evil king. And then his 12-year-old son is going to disappear, and he's going to have to track him down in this high-stakes drama, this chase scene in the gospel. Through it all, God gives him no dramatic new skills, no new wealth, no superpowers, no special instruction apart from what we know of, which is kind of a vague message in a dream. So suddenly he realizes something about himself and his vocation. His life is not about Joseph of Nazareth. His life is about Jesus of Nazareth and Mary of Nazareth, his mother. His life is the life of an obscure Jewish carpenter, but it's also the life of a man who communicates with angels, a life intertwined with strangely dressed processions of magi, and a man who quietly subverts the most momentous political figures of his time. And that, as we will discover, is the extraordinary story of each one of us. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. 
Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.